And you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and just wave your hand and get their attention, and they'll put a Bible in your hand. You can read the Word as well as hear it this morning. And then God wants everybody to know the Bible. So if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 3. And we'll pick things up in verse 11. The word of the Lord. Now, as the lame man was he healed, the, now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us? as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, <clears throat> whom God raised from the dead, of whom we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. It's been a great allergy year, hasn't it? Verse 17. Yet now, brethren... I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will he not hear the prophet shall be utterly destroyed among the people." And yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are, the sons, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you, first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning every one of you from your iniquities. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this, your word. And we thank you, as we do so often, that this passage, every jot, every tittle, every thought, every precept within these verses that we've read are going to outlive human history outlive the heavens and the earth, outlive every material thing and on into the new heavens and the new earth. 
And we thank you for the privilege of being able to build our lives upon something so sure and so eternal. We thank you for the capacity of your word to wash, Lord, the capacity for it to satisfy our thirst, to thoroughly furnish us under every good work. We thank you that it's a living word, and we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would make it alive to us this morning, to our spirit, to our relationship with you, to our service to you today. Lord, bless us as your people with your Holy Spirit ministering your word to our lives, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning I want to do a brief overview of Peter's sermon, the second evangelistic sermon of Peter's found in the book of Acts, and, and then to turn to an application within uh, the sermon that he preaches here that uh, has to do with something really in terms of application to each one of us as Christians. The context of Peter's sermon is the miracle of God healing a lame man, a lame who, man who had been lame from his mother's womb. He had been lame for 40 years, never walked on his feet, never walked on his ankles. And because of the lameness of his condition in that time in human history, he was reduced to the best life that you could have under the circumstances, and that was to be carried by his friends and family each day to one of the gates that led to the Jewish temple where he would spend the day begging for alms. And so there he finds himself in that place, and God uses the Apostle Peter to uh, strengthen the man's ankles and his, uh, his feet, and he is cured of his lameness. He is healed, and he begins, as we're told, and it's graphically described to us in verse 8, the healing of the man is laid out before us. He then, feeling strength within his ankles and his feet, he jumps up, he starts to leap, he stands, he enters the temple with uh, Peter and John, and then he leaps some more and he walks some more, and all the time he's praising the Lord. And it's really a beautiful picture. The emotion of the, of the passage is very, very strong. You can almost sense yourself there watching it as you read about it. Having done that, he then proceeded to uh, cease his leaping and his jumping and his praising, and the Scripture tells us that he uh, puts a grip on Peter and John. He uh, hugs them. He held on to them, we're told, in verse 11. He will not let them go. And when it talks about there the Greek language that's used to describe that in the original language of the New Testament, that holding on to carries the idea of an arrest, a kind of grip that a law enforcement officer puts upon the suspect of a crime to make sure that they don't escape. He is really locked on to these apostles. Well, the response of the crowd is given to us here. Again, I love it. It's a very living kind of picture that God gives to us in the passage. And you remember when Peter and John are going to the temple on this particular day, they're arriving there at the hour of prayer, three in the afternoon. Well, they're not the only two people doing that. There's a multitude of religious Jews that are making their way for all over around Jerusalem. It's a whole flood of people coming through all the various gates, and most especially the gate beautiful. And so they're making their way through there, 
And as they're uh, making their way through, they see this man who for 40 years has laid at the side of this gate begging for alms in order to survive, and now they see him in a condition they've never seen him before. He's jumping, he's leaping, he's walking, he's standing, he's praising the Lord. And the passage tells us in verse 10 that they were all filled with wonder and with amazement. And then, and you can almost picture it again in your mind, in mass, this great group of people flooding into the area of the temple, they now flow toward Peter and John and toward the man. And instantly, Peter and John find themselves surrounded by literally thousands and thousands of people. We know that this crowd numbered in the thousands. It assembles within seconds because 5,000 men are going to ultimately believe the gospel and be saved. So the crowd was at least that size and probably quite a bit larger. And as they are amazed with, uh, we're told in verse 11 that they're amazed at seeing this man healed, and the idea is that they're dumbfounded, they're awestruck. This has really, really got their attention. At this point, Peter understands that the healing of this lame man wasn't the single greatest thing that God was intending to do. He's realizing by the second, and this is fascinating, for all of us as Christians, you find yourself in a situation where God has put you in, and it looks like one thing at the moment, but then as the seconds are ticking by, it's becoming something entirely different. This is morphing into a very large situation, and Peter realizes what I'm in the middle of here with God is not merely the healing of a single lame man at the beautiful gate at the Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem, but this is what God is up to is far bigger than that, and, and God has done this miracle, as wonderful as it is in its own way, to arrest the attention of the multitude of people in order that Peter might preach the gospel to them. Very often in the Scriptures, God's miracles are described as signs and wonders, and that's what's going on here. God rarely does, uh, in the Bible, rarely does He do a miracle in order to just say, you know, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat, if you ever watch the old Bullwinkle cartoons, when there were no other better cartoons on, by the way. Uh, that's what we were reduced to. But God, God never does it just to say, to show off and say, look what I can do and you can't do. Uh, there's a purpose, there's a reason, there's a message uh, tied to everything that He does and to all of His miracles. And that's one of the reasons that they're called a wonder. It's in order to stop people and cause them to wonder about what they're seeing. Uh, here you have a religious crowd heading to the temple and even heading to church or heading to a religious environment, even being a spiritual person, we can get into grooves where we're just going along, moving along. Yes, we love God, yes, but it's very routine. And sometimes God will do something that causes us to stop and say, this is new. I wonder what this is about. And that's precisely what's happening here to get people's attention and get them wondering about what in the world has just happened here? And then 
not only a wonder, but His miracles are often called a sign. And of course, we make great use of road signs in order to direct people from one place to another, from one house to another, one street to another, one city to another, so that if you're headed to uh, Des Moines, you don't end up in Cleveland. Uh, You end up actually in Des Moines, and we use signs in order to accomplish all of that. And so, God uses in the same way signs in order to help people come to a proper conclusion to this journey that is called life in order that we will recognize Jesus' claim as the Messiah, put our faith in Him, and then conclude this uh, journey called life in heaven. Now, you notice Peter's sermon. Immediately, he gave the explanation for the miracle in verse 13. They're wondering, how is this guy, after 40 years of being lame, how is it that he is healed? Peter makes known to them in in an unmistakable fashion that God has done it, and not just any God, but their God, the God of the Jews, the God of the Old Testament Scriptures, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their fathers. He tells them further that the miracle was done for a purpose. Again, not merely a demonstration of God's power, but it was done in order to glorify Jesus. And then Peter in verses 13 through 15, as he did in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost, he drives home the guilt of even these religious people. This is a very religious crowd, and he is going to preach to them their need to be born again and put their faith in Jesus in order to receive the forgiveness of sins. And so, but before anyone will accept God's offer of salvation, they need to recognize, we need to recognize our need for salvation. We have to recognize the guilt in our life that is caught due to the sin that we've committed, and so he brings this forward to them. And he drove home their guilt before God and their need for God's salvation in the most powerful way that he could do with a Jewish religious crowd by reminding them of their part in the crucifixion of Jesus, their Messiah, the very Son of God. And you notice the series of declarations that he makes here concerning them and their responsibility. Remember this sermon is preached not too many weeks after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in Jerusalem. This whole religious crowd would have been familiar with it, and maybe many of them would have stood at the base of the cross and seen Him crucified or been a part of the crowd that called for Jesus' death when, uh, when Pontius Pilate wanted to release Him. And so he declares to them in verse 13, you delivered up uh, Jesus to be crucified. Verse 13, you denied. You denied and delivered to death the one that even the pagan Pontius Pilate would have released. He goes on further in verse 14 and tells them that when given the chance to request the release from Pilate, as was a custom in that day, of a criminal, instead of asking for the release of Jesus, they asked for a murder to be released, a murder by the name of Barabbas. And Peter goes on to declare that it wasn't just anyone that they had done this to, but it was God's servant, verse 13, an Old Testament name for the Messiah, the holy and just one, verse 14, speaking of Jesus' perfect holiness and His perfect justness. He declares in verse 15 that Jesus was and is the prince of life, literally the origin of life, the source of all life. 
And Peter then in verse 15 and 16 plainly declared that this man stood whole before them as an evidence of Jesus' resurrection. Yes, they had crucified him. Yes, he had been buried. But God, their God, the God of the Bible, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God had raised Jesus himself from the dead, and that the miracle of the healing of the lame man was done in Jesus' name, and it was done in order uh, for God to communicate this great truth of Jesus' resurrection to them. You killed him, and he was, you crucified him. He died, but he didn't remain in that condition. And if you think you're kind of done with Jesus, uh, you aren't. God raised him from the dead. And then, lest they should collapse under the weight of what it is that Peter is speaking to them. Again, you've got a crowd of thousands of men standing in front of Peter at this point. He's surrounded by them in this religious environment. 5,000 of them are going to be born again within a few seconds of, of the completion of this particular message. Peter understands when he declares to them what they had as religious Jews done, the part that they had played in the death of the Jewish Messiah, Peter knew himself as a Jew how that news would have hit them. It would have been, I mean, if, if, you, were to, if you were to take, I don't know what the equivalent sin would be in a Gentile's life, a non-Jew's life, what we could be um, confronted with related to our sin might be that would impact us in a comparable way before God with our guilt. These people, it's dawning on them by the second that we crucified, we killed our Messiah, the very Son of God. Now, it's more than words on a page. That's hitting their mind. That's hitting their heart. The reality of that is hitting them and the, their conviction for sin is very, very strong. And so Peter does what anyone does who's sensitive to the listeners that they're speaking to, and that is realizes this conviction is very deep, and now we need to introduce hope into the situation. And that's what he does in verse 17 when he declares, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. And Peter wasn't saying there that it was, what they had done to Jesus was okay and God understands you had a bad day. That's not what he's saying in verse 17. They knew what they were doing was wrong on the day that Jesus was crucified. They were not ignorant of that. But what they were ignorant of was having a heart knowledge concerning who they were doing it to. And in their unbelief, they failed to recognize his identity. Yes, they understood that Jesus made claims to be the Messiah. They understood that Jesus made claims to be the Son of God. But when they crucified him on that day, they were only in their mind crucifying someone who had made those claims. Now under the ministry of the Holy Spirit on this particular day, it is dawning on them that Jesus not only made those claims concerning himself, but they were true about him. And that's hitting them now like a ton of bricks. 
But when they put him on the cross, they did not believe that to be true. They were ignorant concerning that uh, knowledge and concerning that revelation. And Jesus declared as much upon the cross when he prayed to the Father, one of the, his seven sayings on the cross of Calvary, and he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And they didn't. Peter, I mean, Paul, um, later on in his life, he declared of himself in the same vein, writing to Timothy. He said, and I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. When he was trying to destroy the Christian church in Jerusalem and then later was beginning to make his way to Damascus in order to do the same thing there, he did not believe the claims of Jesus. Uh, he was ignorant of the truth of, about those claims concerning him, but when he got knocked off his high horse, so to speak, on that road to Damascus and became born again, then all of a sudden for him what was happening on a mass scale in this day happened to him individually, and he realized, I, have, uh, I am fighting against uh, the very Messiah of the Jews, and I am fighting against the very Son of God. I think it's important to be reminded of the fact that as we see forgiveness being extended to a crowd of religious Jews, many of whom had played a part in Jesus' crucifixion in one way or another as Peter's confronting them, and the greatness of the sin that they were guilty of, and as forgiveness is extended to them in that guilt, to realize that there's always hope in any situation that we involve God in. And no one is hopeless related to salvation. And again, not even these that had doubtless participated in some way in Jesus' crucifixion. There is no sin. There was not a sin in the life of a single one of these 5,000 men that was greater than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and the blood that he shed on that cross. There is no sin in your life, no series of sins in your life. All of the sins of all of the human beings in human history, if rolled together in one great ball, is not greater than the ability for those sins to be forgiven on the basis of the sacrifice that Jesus made upon that cross. And I think that just as that great conviction of sin was hitting them in that place under the preaching of Peter, sometimes it happens to us on a Saturday night or a Friday night or a Thursday morning or wherever it is, and one day we just wake up and all of a sudden we realize we're under conviction from God, but we don't even know that God exists sometimes, and all of a sudden we realize the kind of life that we've lived, what we have done to people in our actions, what we've said, and all, all of this comes tumbling in on us, and then there needs to be this knowledge, especially if I haven't given my life to the Lord yet, the knowledge that all of those sins are forgivable. No matter how bad you are, 
Think about Jeffrey Dahmer, one of the most infamous um, mass murders in the history of the United States of America, and yet he gave his life to Christ because he found that Christ was the only one who could have provided a forgiveness and a hope and a light that was greater than the darkness and the sinfulness of the life that he had lived, not only killing people in large numbers, but then eating their bodies. And he got all twisted up as a kid and all kinds of things, and I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, but I'll tell you something. I, my heart breaks for the victims, and my heart breaks for those families, but I am happy that Jeffrey Dahmer got a breakthrough in his life of the greatness of God's forgiveness and the greatness of that offer, and he took God up on that, and that I'll see him one day in heaven, and none of us will remember any of this nightmare that's called life here on planet Earth ever again. There is no sin. This is my point. There is no sin that is greater than Jesus' ability to forgive us of our sins as we put our trust in him. There's hope for you, and there's hope for me. Peter declared further in verse 18 that though they were responsible for what they'd done to Jesus, that it had all been foretold by God through the prophets that it would happen exactly as it did. And then in verse 19, Peter called on them to repent of their sins and to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And a beautiful thing that he does there in verse 19 into verse 21, he then describes to them the blessings that would come into their lives as a result. He said, your sins will be blotted out. In those days, they, they, what they would write on was papyra, and, uh, and because they hadn't really developed the uh, acids that allow uh, ink in those days to penetrate the papyra, um, you would write something on the papyra, and then it would readily be wiped right off. It could be readily erased. And so here he's talking about our sins through faith in Christ being blotted out, wiped away, erased, canceled. And isn't it a wonderful thing? I remember many, many years ago, uh, my mom struggled um, in her life, and I remember visiting her uh, many, many times in my childhood at uh, Napa State Hospital, and you'd go into one ward and then a deeper ward and a deeper ward and a deeper ward until finally she was there, and then progressively they would let her go into less restrictive wards until she would ultimately be able to return uh, home again. So anybody that says anything about, you know, mental health or people in state hospitals or something gets my attention, and I remember years ago reading about, and I don't know the man's name, but he, I think he was over the, the mental health system in the state of California, and back then there were a lot, of men, a lot of state hospitals in those days, mental health hospitals, and funding has cut those way back and all. Now a lot of people are on the street that would have normally been in those places. But he's made the statement, if I could only find a cure for guilt... I could release 90% of the patients in these hospitals. And having uh, watched what guilt did to my mom and having been in these places, I'll tell you, I don't doubt it at all. 
What a wonderful thing tonight. I mean, we read a sermon like this, and it's an evangelistic sermon. It's being written to people who don't know the Lord. It's being preached that way, but it's saying stuff that is our reality as Christians and to stop and meditate upon that. How wonderful it is to sit here and to wake up every single morning as a Christian and to know that my sins are blotted out, that they are erased that I am not carrying them from one day to the next day to the next day to the next day. When I became a Christian back in 1980, there was already enough sin in my life that I regretted that drove me to Christ. And now here I've walked with the Lord for 35 years. Imagine if I was carrying 35 more years of sin on my back because of the life that I had lived. It becomes unbearable ultimately. And I say all of this to give hope to any one or two or five or ten of us in this room today of the blessing of having our sins blotted out and that God will do that and He will lift that load off of our shoulders and off of our heart and our minds and off of our spirit and give us a freedom that we wouldn't otherwise know. He told them further that not only would their sins be blotted out, but in order that they would experience the spiritual refreshment that comes with the presence of God, with the Holy Spirit coming into their lives. And you think about the refreshment, the satisfaction that the Holy Spirit has brought into our lives as Christians. When I wake up every single morning as a Christian, I don't wake up with the idea that I need to investigate um, other religions in the world uh, because Christianity hasn't satisfied me. I don't wake up in the morning uh, feeling like I need to explore the life of the atheist or the life of the materialist or the life of anything because Christ has come into our lives. We wake up in the morning and spiritually we are satisfied. He has satisfied every spiritual need that we have. And what a wonderful thing it is to be able to walk through life knowing that I'm in the truth and I'm happy in the truth and God has brought a satisfaction spiritually into my life that I would never otherwise know. And it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful thing that He has done in doing so. And He spoke to them further in verse 20 and 21 that this putting their faith in Jesus would then make them ready for Jesus' return when ultimately He will come back at His second coming and establish His kingdom on the earth, and then we will rule and reign with Him before all of this gives way to a new heaven and a new earth. And then Peter went on to cite the most authoritative voice that he could have in the Old Testament in order to get this Jewish audience to put their faith in Jesus as their Savior. And when he quoted Moses in verse 22, and in essence says, Moses himself told you all about him, all about Jesus in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And he told you that when this prophet came, a prophet like me, a prophet from among the Jews, that when he comes, you're to listen to his voice, the Messiah's voice, and then he warned of the judgment that would come upon all who failed to do so. And as Jews, they were told, as Peter finished his sermon, that they had the privilege of hearing the gospel first. Then the Gentiles would later hear it, and that Jesus had been sent to bless them. How was he, how, sent to bless us in what way? In turning us away from our iniquities.
So here you have a Savior that not only provides us with the forgiveness of sins and blots those sins away so we don't have to carry decades of sin day by day by day all the way into our future. He provides us with a complete forgiveness. But then He provides us with the power. He provides us with the, the ability to then live a different kind of life, to be able to turn away from our iniquities. He provides us with the will to do and the power to do of His good pleasure. It would be one thing if the quality of the salvation that Jesus gives us was, I provide you with the forgiveness of sins, but you're going to remain the same that you are. You will load up with sin. You'll never be freed from the sinful life that you're living. You'll never know any relief from it. There's no hope for the drug addict. There's no hope for the porn addict. There's no hope for the covetous person. There's no hope for the person that slaughters people with their tongue every day. There's no hope. All you'll do is just continue to be the same person all the way into heaven, but I'll, I'll forgive you each step of the way. I would take that if that's all that Christ provided, but that's not just what He provided. He provides us with a complete forgiveness, and then the Holy Spirit comes into our life, and He gives us a desire to live a different kind of life, a life like Christ, and then He gives us the power to then live that life, and that's what He's speaking to, uh, to these uh, Jewish uh, uh, audience here, that every one of them might be able to then turn from your iniquity. All of us deal with sin as Christians in our life. We will until the day that we go to heaven, and then we'll be done with it. And I say, good riddance. <laughs> but every Christian in this room knows what it means to be delivered from iniquity. We know there's another power in our life. We know we're not living the same life that we once lived. And it's a wonderful truth. And it's a wonderful reality. And a wonderful result of this spiritual birth that occurs from putting our faith in Christ. And 5,000 men heard these very words that we are reading on this page. They heard it in their ears. And they put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin and they entered into a relationship with God. And we know it was 5,000 from chapter 4, verse 4. And you know, it's a wonderful thing to be able to say is that God will do that same thing to any one of us in this room or anyone that's listening to this anywhere that they might find themselves. God will do it if we will allow Him to do it by putting our faith in Christ. Forgive us and make us into a new creation. I wonder why the Apostle Paul, as he's shipwrecked and he's beaten 39 stripes and he's beaten with rods and he's in a day and a night in the deep and he's dealing with hunger and he's dealing with thirst and he's dealing with persecution and, he, and all the way through all of it, all that he faced to be able to deliver this message, but a message that had changed his life. It was the he lived the truth of this message every day in his life, and thus he writes to the Romans concerning the gospel and the power of it. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The wonderful power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now allow me to close.
by making a simple life application, ministry application from this passage and specifically from verse 12. And I want you to look at it once again. And so when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though we, by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk. And Peter recognized in looking at the crowd who was then looking at him and John and looking at this formerly lame man that they ascribed the miracle of this man's changed life to them. And more specifically, to Peter and John's power and godliness. They looked at Peter and John, they saw the man clinging to him, and they said, they, there's something about their power, something about their strength that caused this to happen, something about their godliness, their piety, their devotion to God, their godly behavior. That's the explanation behind all of this. And it's the idea that God used them because there is something extra special about their spiritual strength or power, or there's something extra special about their godliness and their devotion to God. And I'm convinced that this moment right here represented what was perhaps the most dangerous moment in Peter's ministry. I think far more dangerous than all of the physical persecution he would later face for being faithful to God's call upon his life. Because if Peter takes the glory for the miracle, then it might have been the end of his ministry, and he would have simply disappeared from the book of Acts and put on the shelf, so to speak, for the simple reason that the Bible teaches that God will not share his glory with anyone. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. That is my name. And, I, and my glory I will not give to another. And instead, Peter resolutely refused to take any glory for the miracle, but he gave all of the glory to God. And in doing so, Peter is an example to all of us. For God's calling upon our life is never in greater danger than when God has used us in a powerful way in the lives of others, and then we are tempted in some way to take the glory. And sometimes it isn't by something that's so obvious as, yeah, I did that, as it is something that's a lot more subtle, and I walk away from what the miracle that God did and I begin to think that that happened because I'm special. There's something special about my strength, and there's something special about my relationship with God and my devotion to God. Peter had a clear understanding and an important one that all of us, the best of us, all of us as Christians, we are at at best, always and only instruments in the hand of God. 
and an instrument lies completely idle, whether it's a tool on a shelf in a garage or whether it's a scalpel on a tray in in an operating room, a tool always lies completely idle and powerless in and of itself until the master chooses to pick it up and then to use it, and it doesn't matter what the power or what the glory of the instrument might be. And when the instrument is used, no matter how wonderful the instrument might be, whether a piano or a violin or a scalpel, the praise always goes to the master, never to the instrument. When a surgeon finishes a surgery and then comes out to the family and informs them that the surgery was a success, the family then thanks the surgeon profusely, and I doubt any surgeon has ever had a family then ask that he or she bring out the scalpel so that they could praise it as well. And Paul understood this clearly when he wrote to the church at Corinth who were confused about these very kind of issues. He said, who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? That ministers through whom you believed, as God gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And so then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. In the book of Acts and the Christianity that is described here, it's a very attractive Christianity. It's very raw. It's very powerful. It's very real. And as any spirit-filled Christian will look at what's described here in the book of Acts, we long for it. This is the Christianity we want, the purity of it, the unencumbered Christianity that's described there. But that Christianity hinges on things that are large and obvious, but it also hinges on things that are more obscure, but that are just as important as the things that are obvious. There would be no book of Acts without the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There would be no book of Acts apart from the preaching of the gospel. There would be no book of Acts apart from the apostles' doctrine and prayer and fellowship in the Lord's Supper. But it's equally true that there would be no book of Acts if the disciples failed to give God the glory for his use of them and if instead they took the glory to themselves. I don't think, and it is not my purpose this morning, to preach to this church or to you that I think that anyone is robbing God of His glory in our lives. But to look at it from a different angle a little bit and, and see it in a way that Peter is bringing forth here. This idea that God uses us on the basis of our power and our godliness is one that is not going to go away until there's a new heaven and a new earth. That is going to come into the minds of our own minds and the minds of other people all the way to the end of the age. And we just have to be aware of it and know how to deal with it in our service to the Lord. I think of some of the sources in our lives that reinforce this idea that God uses us because we're extra special in terms of power or extra special in terms of of godliness. I think most often 
it occurs, as is the case in the passage, where it's just the firm conviction of other people who have been… God uses you to impact their life, to change their life, to do something wonderful in their life. And even as we see here, deeply religious people can come to the conclusion that you deserve some credit for what God has done through your life that there is, there is something extra special about your strength or power, something extra special about your godliness and your devotion to God. And people are virtually incurable in this regard. It is, it is, it is a tendency in my life as well to think that people who are greatly used by God are greatly used by God because their power and their devotion to God must be proportional to the greatness with which God is working through their life. And that what we're talking about here, I'm not talking about not encouraging somebody. Encouragement is very encouraged in the Bible, where God has used somebody in our lives and to thank them for that, tell them what God did, and everybody praises the Lord for that. All of that is very, very important. I think that most dangerous is the temptation that we can begin to believe the fa this, this idea that God uses us because of our power or because of our godliness. We come to believe it concerning ourselves. And you can get very superstitious in all of this. As superstitious as the coach that's on a winning streak with his football team and he continues to wear the same tie on game day as long as the team's winning streak continues to go on. And everybody knows they aren't winning the football games because of the tie, but who knows and who wants to take the chance, right? And thus, if the home fellowship group is, goes extraordinarily well on a particular night or a teaching in the children's ministry or leading worship in some capacity, and that particular event is a home run, there's something within us that is tempted to try and trace it back in our minds to some strength or to some godliness in our lives. I prayed X number of hours and that happened. I read this many chapters of the Bible and that happened. I prepared for that particular event in such and such a way and that happened. What streets did I drive down on the way home from work to my house before I went to minister? There must be something in driving down those streets. Every time I teach the home fellowship, I'm going to go down those same streets. There's nothing wrong with personal disciplines. All those things are good in and of themselves, but they are not the reason God blesses us and He uses us. Sometimes this idea is reinforced by the statement of other servants of the Lord who are sometimes asked um, when they're used in a mighty way, they're asked, you know, what is the source of their effectiveness or their fruitfulness? And the first thing that then can sometimes come out of their mouths is that it has to do with something to do with their strength, with their discipline, with their determination, with their prayer life, with their faith. And if only we were like them, then God would use us in the same way. And it plants in our minds the idea that God only uses extraordinarily strong people and extraordinarily godly people. But the Bible teaches, for you see your calling, brethren, 
that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty, the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That, that's a reason word, that, no flesh should glory in his presence. Paul declared concerning himself, he said, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. And concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that he, it might depart from me, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responded, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And in this regard, I'm always reminded of the story that I heard Gail Irwin tell years ago when he was a part of a magazine that was being published by a major denomination in the United States of America. And one of his jobs on that magazine was to go to whatever church within that denomination was experiencing the greatest growth, do an interview, do an article, it would appear in the magazine. So he went down, I believe it was Texas somewhere, within that denomination, and he did an interview and did a whole article and all, uh, and it was put within the magazine. And some period of months later, he is uh, in a hotel room traveling again, the kingdom-related, and he turns on the television to Christian television, and there the pastor of that church is seated and being interviewed. And the man who interviewed him asked him, what do you ascribe all of this great growth and effectiveness to? And before the pastor answered, Gail thought to himself in his mind, if he has any other answer than the grace of God, it's over. And Gail said, unfortunately, he had another answer having to do with might and having to do with godliness. And Gail said, within a year, that church was returned to its former size. And Peter and John were very careful not to portray themselves as men of extraordinary power or godliness. And if we come to believe that God uses us because of some special strength that we possess or some special godliness, it will always result in two things in our life, both of them destructive, both of them disastrous. First, it will result in some lives in pride where I begin to see myself as better than others, better than other ministers, better than other servants in whatever capacity God has called me to because of my fruitfulness. And then I start to see myself above others. And pride, the Bible says, always is going to lead to a great humbling and a great, great fall and ultimately destruction. The second result of this kind of thinking is that it will if I am convinced that God works in my life on the basis of special strength or special godliness, is that it results in discouragement in a different kind of person's life and ultimately in burnout. And I will listen to those who ascribe 
God's use of them to all of their strength, all of their disciplines, all of their works, all of their devotion to God. And then what happens is I begin to lose hope of ever being able to attain to the strength and the godliness that they have and thus to attain to God's use of my life in the same way. And the result is always discouragement, which after pride is the single most powerful force that God uses against his, uh, the devil uses against God's servant in the world today, discouragement. And ultimately, in that kind of a person, it ultimately leads to burnout because if God's favor and anointing is based upon my strength and my godliness, then more strength and more godliness will result in more favor and more anointing. And so I give myself to that, but you never know how much God expects and how much is enough. And ultimately, Christian service becomes joyless. It becomes this constant pressure cooker, and then we crack, and then ultimately we quit. We want out. But we can't afford to have people get out because the fields are white under harvest. And so what's our protection against all of this? What Peter models to us here, the realization that God's use of each of us is solely to the praise of the glory of His grace. Grace is the protection, the realization that God uses me not because I deserve to be used, but he uses me out of his undeserved, unmerited favor upon my life. And when we realize that, we'll be very, very quick to give God all of the glory for his use of us, for his purposes. And the fact of the matter is, that the very, very best among us in the body of Christ in terms of strength and devotion to God are not worthy to be used by God for His purposes. I don't care how godly any of us are, and may we be as godly as we can be, but the best of us is far away from the holiness and the purity of heaven as the worst sinner in this world. It is pure grace that God uses each one of us. And in our service to the Lord, peace is found in just doing our best and then committing the rest to God to make much of that, and he'll be faithful to do so. And the result is a life of Christian service that is now marked by joy and by peace and by longevity because the service is now being done out of a recognition of God's grace and being done in response to His grace. And that does something wonderful within us. The Christian life is all grace. It is grace in its salvation. It is grace in our sanctification. It is grace in our Christian service. And I don't know why my heart was turned to, chapter, uh, to verse 12 as it was this week. But perhaps there are one or two or five or ten of us in this room where in your Christian service you've gotten on this treadmill. 
And somehow, as I've said, through all of the voices, and it's the whole world operates this way. We are rewarded on the basis of our own power and effort and on the basis of our own godliness. It all carries into the Christian world as well. We find ourselves on that treadmill. It leads to exhaustion, and ultimately we collapse under the weight of it because somehow it's us and it isn't. Christian service is all about God's grace in using us. And then we become the servant we would never otherwise become when we serve him then in response to the grace that he shows us in using us. It's a wonderful place to live in. It's a wonderful place to serve in. It's the only place we can serve in that will carry us all the way to the end of the age, remaining fruitful and effective in God's hands, right on into the glory of heaven. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we don't need to tell you that the whole world around us, it's a works-based system, it is a works-based system. And then to look at the people of the world that are being shoved into the various parts of this giant machine known as commercial Babylon and to see them crushed and used up and thrown to the wayside and then replaced with the next batch. And then, Lord, when all of that comes into the church and it becomes our thinking about the kingdom of God and our service to you and how you operate, then we will collapse as well. But we thank you so much for Peter's boldness and John's boldness on this day to remind that crowd and to remind us as a crowd in this room today that all of this that occurs in and through our lives occurs because of the greatness of your grace and that you are a gracious God. And Lord, we thank you for the deep breath that that allows us to take in our service of you. And Lord, the blessing that it fills our heart with and the peace that fills our heart and our service as a result. Thank you for your grace your grace in saving us, your grace in cleaning us up and making us into the image of Christ, and your grace in using us, Lord. And then the glory that you receive as it is done and as we recognize that grace and then give you glory and praise in response to it. And I pray and we pray for any one person or 10 or 20 that are in the room today that are just about to break under the weight of this other system. We pray that you take them by the hand and bring them into grace today and preserve their ministry, Lord, and give them a greater fruitfulness than they've ever known before for your glory as they now serve you in response to your goodness and your unmerited favor in their life. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they would love to pray with you 
to receive Christ just as these 5,000 did and then to enter into the life that God promises you from his word. All there for the asking, all there for the receiving for you. Come forward after the service and give your life to the Lord. If you need prayer for anything this morning, they'd love to pray with you and for you.